John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Typically, we read the word before it's preached. We pray. Uh, but today, we got to get through the entire chapter. And so there's no time. we got to move. All right? <laughs> if you're new with us, we've been going through the gospel of John together. And today, we're in this marvelous story talking about how Jesus opened the eyes of a man who was blind. Now, before we enter into this text, something that's extremely important for us to know and understand is that one of the expectations of the coming Messiah is that he would give sight to the blind. Okay? It's an expectation. Jewish culture, Old Testament expectation. And we see this in various places throughout the prophets. Let me just draw your attention to a few of them. In Isaiah 29, 18, for example, this is what is told about the Messiah who would come. Isaiah says this, In that day when the Messiah arrives, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And then just a few chapters later in Isaiah, he says this in chapter 35, he writes, when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, un uh, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so now Jesus comes on the scene. He arrives. And, and one of the proofs that he is Messiah is that he gave sight to the blind. In fact, we might even say that this is Jesus's or was Jesus's favorite type of healing because there are actually more miracles. I didn't know this till this week. Maybe that's shame on me, but I didn't. I didn't know till this week, but there are more miracles of the blind seeing attributed to Jesus than any other category of healing in the New Testament. It's what Jesus does the most. He gives sight to the blind. And that's because, again, that miracle was reserved specifically for the Messiah. That's why the people say in Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus heals somebody who's blind, they say, the blind can see, is this the son of David? Or perhaps you recall the story of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7. John is in prison. Uh, he has some doubt, actually about what's going on because he's in prison. And so he sends some of his disciples out to Jesus to meet Jesus with some questions. And what does John say to his disciples? He says, go ask Jesus if he truly is the one or if somebody else is coming after him. And to that, Jesus responds like this. Go tell John that the blind see. There are no accounts in the Old Testament of giving sight to the blind. Not one. None of Jesus' followers, none of his disciples, do that miracle either. The only thing you see in the Old Testament is that God is able to do this miracle. And so, as we enter into this story in John, let's understand right from the beginning that this is really a really big deal. It's a really big deal. There's a reason that the entirety of John 9 deals with this one story because this is proof that Jesus is the long-awaited one. 
Jesus here reveals himself once again to be the Messiah. He shows himself to be the light of the world. And this teaches us ultimately that coming to Jesus is coming out of darkness into light. And more, it's coming out of blindness into sight. And by the way, this is the testimony of every follower of Jesus, isn't it? This is our story. This is my story. I was blind, but now I see. So let's take a look at this together. This is how John chapter 9 starts. As he, that's Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We'll pause for a second. So we begin John 9 with a hopeless situation. Totally hopeless. There's a man who is blind from birth. That's a hopeless person in the first century, in that culture. This is a man who had no employment. This is a man who would have no prospects for marriage. This is a man who had no formal education and no ability to attend school. And worst of all, in his day, there is no social honor. This man would be severely looked down upon. But, but, Jesus passes by him, which means for the very first time in his life, there's hope. And then the question is asked by Jesus' disciples, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, they want to know, do we suffer in life because of our sin or is our suffering the result of somebody else's sin? They're asking, is this like a, a parent's thing, like a generational thing, or is it all about us and what we do? I think this is certainly a really relevant question to ask, particularly in a culture like ours where there is a lot of Confucianism and Buddhism. Um, a lot of religions attempt to answer this question. Maybe you've asked this question yourself. Jesus, they say, this man before us is blind, and they want to know whose fault is it? Whose sin caused this? So, we notice for the disciples, the focus for them is on the cause for suffering. But what Jesus is going to masterfully do here is redirect the issue to the purpose of God in suffering. And let me just say this. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this in the scriptures. If you remember the story of Job back in the Old Testament, Job's this man, he's, he's, he's living for God, he's righteous, upstanding, Job then starts to suffer. Right? You read about that account. Suffer harshly, deeply, when you read about his life. And so, his friends come along, or the guys who are supposed to be his friends. They observe what's happened to Job and his life, how it's all fallen apart, and what do they do? They raise this exact same issue. And what they do is they blame Job's suffering on his past. It must have been something in your past. You must have done something. But listen, the disciples' question and Job's friend's response to suffering is not the gospel response. 
You see, our first thought in suffering should be, first and foremost, when we suffer, the first response, first and foremost, should be to exalt God in our suffering. And then, second to that, we should remember that one day the Lord will remove all suffering. That's the posture of a follower of Jesus, should be. And how do we glorify God in our suffering? Well, we do this by trusting him. We do this by resting in his plan, his purpose, his sovereignty. And we do this by finding peace that through our pain and struggle, that God is making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And one more thing I want to say about suffering is that even though John doesn't elaborate on this here, we know from the whole story of the Gospels that our God, our God understands human suffering. Not just because he understands all suffering, which he does, he understands all things, right? But because our God doesn't just sit back and watch human beings suffer. No, God sent his son to the earth to suffer, to die as the suffering servant, so that he could understand our weakness, so that he could identify with us, but above all, so that he could actually provide an answer to our pain, to our struggle, to that suffering. Well, none of those things are, of course, on the minds of the disciples. They have a very simplistic worldview, and they are thinking more about karma than kingdom. It's the best way to think of it. They're asking the wrong question. Whose fault is this? That's a karma question. It's not a kingdom thing. So back to our text, Jesus responds. Jesus answered. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So he says, no and no, you're wrong. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we should point out, by the way, that sometimes, sometimes in life, you do suffer because of your sin. Of course, there are consequences to our actions. We do suffer because of our sin. I think we all know that, right? If you eat too much, that's your fault, okay? You go over the speed limit, you get a ticket, you deserve that. I hate that. I get a lot of those. But that is not unjust suffering, okay? As much as sometimes I think it is, right? But it's not always because of sin that we suffer. And Jesus points out, that God has a particular purpose in view in our suffering. He says, these things happen that the works of God might be displayed in this man. See verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, my incarnation God becoming flesh, coming to dwell amongst you, that is a temporary thing. It's a temporary stay. My coming to earth is temporary. And so, he says, I need to do this work now so that I can reveal who I am, but also so that I can reveal the kingdom that's to come. He says, I'm here for a limited time, so I need to do these works. I love, by the way, that he calls miracles work. For Jesus, miracle is like going to work. I got, a couple work, I got some work to do. No, he's got the miraculous to do. But he says, I need to do these miracles while I can. And then there is this beautiful reminder of who Jesus is there, right? He says, I am the light of the world. We've heard this before. I am the light of the world, in case you forgot, everyone. I'm the answer for the world's problems. I'm the answer for the suffering that you see before you. The answer for sin. The answer for darkness. And I'm about to show you I'm the answer for blindness. And then at that, Jesus displays what happens 
when you meet the light of the world. This is incredible. This is what happens when you encounter the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, when you first read this, it's a bit surprising, isn't it? We haven't read anything like this in John's gospel. It's unexpected. Jesus does what? He spits, right? He spits on the ground. And then he follows that up by making this sort of mud pie, right? And if that wasn't enough, he reaches down, takes that mud, and he puts it on the blind man's eyes. Sing about this week. This is every little kid's dream, right? You want to be like Jesus? Spit, play in the mud, right? That's, I'm just being like Jesus, right? You could tell your, uh, tell your parents that. Teens, guys, right? If you're, you're spitting the ground, if you're a girl, you want to spit on the ground, great. I haven't seen that much, but... You are spitting the ground back. I'm just being like Jesus. No, don't do that. Hey, don't do that. Let me be very clear. We should not imitate Jesus like this. Don't do this. Okay? And, and I shouldn't have to say that, but you can Google this for yourself. I, I recommend not, but Google. There's a pretty famous pastor these days. A lot of people are following him, listening to him. He's got a pretty large church. He recently brought up a church member, taught, was teaching a story like this, and literally did this. And he was like, like nose all the way on, whatever, and, and on his hand and put it on church members' eyes. Literally did that to make a point. Don't do that. Okay, don't do that. You're not Jesus. It's gross, and it's also dangerous. Okay? Why? Because actually there's a very specific purpose to Jesus doing this that you can't miss. Jesus isn't just like, oh, like, There's a lot of different ways. He could have spoken and just said, see. There's a reason he spits in the mud. There's a reason he forms the mud in the clay. There's a reason he puts the mud on the man's eyes. And it's not to amuse us. And it's certainly not to confuse us. And it's certainly so that other pastors don't come up and imitate this. Heaven forbid. Unless one of you want to volunteer. Where where are we at? Where is Paul, David, one of the staff? You want to come? All right, I could do. We won't do that, all right? Most scholars agree unanimously that this is actually an echo and meant to be an echo of the creation account of man being formed out of the dust, out of the mud. And so what we actually have here is this sort of new creation account taking place. This is foreshadow actually or a preview of the new creation to come and the one who's bringing about that new creation And then we see that John, or sorry, Jesus, sends this guy to the pool of Siloam. And if you've been here with us through this last section of John's gospel, back to John 7 specifically, that place should sound very familiar to you. Because remember, this is where the high priest goes to draw water for the water ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, right? That's John 7. So there's some symbolism in that. We're wrapping up the Feast of Tabernacles here. And he says, hey, the high priest went to the pool of Siloam to do that miracle, to remember God's favor and his faithfulness and all that he is to us. Now I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. Can you imagine? That's a place for the high priest. And now he sends 
this desperate man, a, a man who should never be there. But beyond that, notice that John tells us a very important detail, and that is that Siloam means sent. It means sent. Over and over again, we've been reading about Jesus, and one of the things that we keep seeing Jesus say even about himself, even John the Baptist says, that Jesus is sent from heaven, that he is the sent one. So there's some irony here in what Jesus does, because notice This man is being sent to the place called sent and he's being healed by the sent one. The sent one sends him to sent to be healed. Okay? Well, then we're told what happens. And if I were John, uh, verse 7 wouldn't have looked like this. (laughs) But John writes this in a very non-dramatic report because the focus is not supposed to be on the man, it's supposed to be on Jesus. It says this, this is verse seven now, you ready? Here's the miracle. So he went and washed and he came back seeing, period. No big deal. (laughs) An absolute miracle, but John tells us as quite an understatement. He writes this in an understating way. He went, he washed, he saw. Incredible. This, this man is made new. He can now see. And by the way, this is again what, what happens when you and I become followers of Jesus. We see the whole entire world differently, don't we? C.S. Lewis once famously said, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. The sun in the sky. The sun has risen. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's a whole new worldview when you meet Jesus Christ. Well, the story continues. And in verses 8 and 9, we see the beginning of several discussions that take place after this miracle. There are a whole lot of discussions, a whole lot of talks that need to be had, which makes a lot of sense. There has to be an explanation for this, what happened. And so first, we see the neighbors get involved. I chuckled when I read that first. You don't ever want your neighbors getting involved in your business. But they do. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? This man's appearance has changed, apparently his demeanor as well. Some said, it is he. Others among them, though, said, no, but he is like him. So people are like, hey, is, is this the guy who used to beg? And we see there's this debate taking place. Yeah, it's him. No, it's not. It kind of looks like him. Does it sound like him? I get to talk. Like, there's this back and forth. Now, how many of you know when you meet Christ, how many of you know when you meet Jesus, sometimes you're unrecognizable? Like, sure, you might appear the same in some ways, but actually you've totally changed, totally transformed I know that certainly was the case for me. I have a lot of old friends who knew me before Jesus. A lot of old friends who are so surprised at who I am now and particularly what I do because of who I used to be and what I used to do with them. I remember even my own brother. 
I have two other brothers. There's my middle one. I'm the youngest. My middle brother. My own brother, who unfortunately, not yet, uh, is not a follower of Jesus. Pray for him. His name is Steve. Maybe he's watching. We're praying for you. Uh, He's not a believer. And I remember um, him calling me on the phone after I started to follow Jesus. And I changed schools and changed my major and everything. And he called me with a lot of concern. He's a very successful person, by the way. Like the whole Wall Street stock trading stuff. He called me with a lot of concern and he said this to me. I'll never forget it. 17 years ago. He said, uh, what in the world has, Jamie, said, Jamie, what in the world has happened to you? Some of the family is concerned. You've totally changed. But this is what happens to us by God's grace. Amen. We totally change. We're unrecognizable. The world can't understand who we are, what we do, and why we choose to do the things that we now do. Well, notice what the guy says, the man who's healed. He kept saying to everyone, I'm the man. (laughs) Not like today's language, like I'm the man, you know. But like, no, it's me. It's me. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? They need to know, how did this happen? Remember, remember the context. This makes, this is so much more impactful when you understand the context. Context matters so much. I say it to you guys all the time here. Context matters. Know the context. Because remember, for the crowd there, this has never happened before. There's no category for this. God is able to do this. The Messiah was promised to come and do this, but no one has ever seen this. No pun intended. So he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I love, I love how matter of fact he is here. This guy, I don't know who he is. This guy made mud, he put it on my eyes and told me to wash. A man called Jesus, he says. Now, we're going to see that this man's understanding of Jesus will grow as the story unfolds. We're going to see that very clearly. There's a great takeaway in that, by the way. We'll get to it at the end. But much like the way that all of us do when we come to faith, there's progression. There's progression for this man. But at this point, he just said there's a man called Jesus. That's all he knows. This man walked by me. His name was Jesus. This is what he told me to do. I went, I washed, received my sight. Any questions? And they do have one. They said to him, where is he? Where is he? And I love his answer. He said, I do not know. That man named Jesus who healed me, I have no idea where he is. So that that then, of course, brings in the Pharisees. (laughs) Good old Pharisees. We're about to learn that the man is actually brought to the Pharisees. He doesn't choose to go to them. He's brought to before them. And of course, they don't like the fact that Jesus has healed somebody. But more specifically, they don't like it because it happened on the Sabbath. And so once again, we have another Sabbath controversy in John's gospel. 
You see, the Sabbath was a foreshadow of Jesus himself. We talked about this. You have to go back to read more about that. I just don't have the time today. The Sabbath was a foreshadow of Jesus himself. We know that in Christ Jesus, we have ultimate rest. Ultimate rest. Rest is found in Christ. We know that Jesus never takes a day off. There's no vacation days for him because he is God. And so Jesus was never violating the Sabbath because he was himself the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And if the religious leaders, if the Pharisees would have paid attention, they would have listened more intently. They would have seen that this miracle that just had taken place was for everybody to see and for everybody to say that our rest is in Jesus. That's why he healed on the Sabbath, because Jesus wants us to know that our rest, our peace, is found in him. Our joy is in Christ, in Christ alone. But they cannot see, which is sort of ironic, isn't it? They're the religious leaders, the elite, the Pharisees, the top of the social pyramid, and they cannot see. Verse 15 So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He's brought before the Pharisees. Now he's asked, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, same story. He put mud on my eyes and I washed. And now I see. All true. All very concise. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others among them said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So there are those now in, in, on the scene who are debating from the principle of the Sabbath. We're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, not allowed to do things on the Sabbath. And this man has done that, and therefore he's not from God. And then there's those on the other side of the equation who are arguing from the principle of a miracle. Yeah, but we we know the Sabbath laws, but how can somebody not from God do the works of God? See the problem? So they again said to the blind man, we got opinions. These are the Pharisees, by the way. Remember who they're talking to? Desperate man, totally uneducated. Right, a nobody in society. These are the Pharisees, and amongst them, they're debating. They turn to the man and they say, what do you say about him? since he's opened your eyes, right? They actually ask his opinion. (laughs) He said, he is a prophet. This man's answer to their question now shows that bit of progression that I was talking about, doesn't it? His his name was Jesus. Now, actually, now that I think of it, if you really ask me, he's got to be a prophet. And by the way, that's true, but it's still insufficient because Jesus is more than a prophet. But For this guy, again, at this present moment, this is as high of a status as he knows. Because we know, and he knew, they all knew that the prophets of the Old Testament did miracles. Think of Elijah. Think of Elisha, for example. This man's like, he's like those guys. He must be like him, a prophet. And and again, we should picture this scene. It's worth it for us to take, our, take ourselves into the story. This man has only been seeing for a matter of moments, minutes maybe. And then he is dragged to the Pharisees amongst these intimidating leaders 
who have all this power, all this control, and he's being grilled with all of these questions. And actually, he's doing a pretty good job. He's standing firm. But the Jews are not satisfied. We have to remember now, you know, we're told at the very back of, beginning of the section in chapter 7 of John that they wanted to kill Jesus. They sort of planned that. Just recently, we talked about how they were picking up stones to kill him, right? They hate Jesus. They, they've been trying to kill him now. They want him dead. And so the interrogation continues. But this time, they turn from the former blind man himself to his parents. They'll stop at nothing to catch Jesus. So it says in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And what we read is that they say some true things but interestingly enough, they, they don't really defend their son that strongly. It's sad, actually. There's a bit of a deflection that happens here. His parents answered, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. And then they say, ask him. He's of age. In other words, he's old enough. He will speak for himself. So there's this, there's this sort of almost like attitude now. The, the parents are like, leave us out of this. Right? We, we don't want any part of this. Yeah, that's our son. We'll tell you that. Yes, he was born blind. We're looking at him now. He's seeing. Yep. But that's all we know. We don't know what happened. And our writer, John, actually tells us why they do this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed, and it must have been told, that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, he was to be put out of the synagogue, kicked out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, in fear, he's old enough for himself. Ask him. Don't ask us. So they deflect. Sorry, son, you're old enough. Now, nah, you're on your own with this one. And so the Jews really have no choice now, do they? They call the former blind man back. <laughs> they bring him back a second time. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, I, I love this. <laughs> oh, man, Pharisees are great. They say, Give glory to God, right? Very holy of them, right? They start it this way. We've heard what you said. We've heard your parents. And then they start, oh, you're before. Give glory to God. They say, this is about God's glory. So tell us the truth. But what they really mean by that is, tell us what we want to hear. So hypocritical. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So arrogant, so much hate, so blind, and this is one of my favorite verses in all of John's gospel. The blind man's response to them asking to give God glory. He answered, whether he is a sinner, 
I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Jesus, uh, the, the man says, you guys can work out for yourself who that guy Jesus is. Work it out amongst yourselves. Whether he is a sinner or not, you tell me. I only know one thing. And no amount of debate can change this fact, can change this reality. I was blind, and now I see. As a bit of a, a side note, I think this is very instructive for us. Because, you know, people always want to attack Christianity. If you've ever, I'm sure the majority of us have dealt with a person like this, they always have all these, what they think are, gotcha questions. Always looking for a debate. But let me encourage you, when you're asked questions about Christianity and someone wants you to prove Christianity to them, stick with the facts. Stay on the gospel. Don't get distracted. That's what this man does. It's brilliant. Here he is, never been to school, and he is schooling the Pharisees. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. So we learn that this man here is now discovering what we have been saying about the Pharisees for quite a while now. He uncovers their problem, and that is that this is not an intellectual issue for them. This is a heart issue for them. It's a spiritual issue. I've already told you what happened, but you clearly just don't like what happened. Then he says, why do you want to hear it again? This is maybe the best part. And he pokes at them here. I love it. He says, do you also want to become his disciples? For office fans, boom, roasted. Right? So good. You're asking me again, oh, you're curious about Jesus. Would you like to be one of us? Right? They certainly don't like those words, do they? So it says, and they reviled him. It's a word worth putting a note next to, actually. Reviled. Because that's the exact same word that was used by John earlier to describe how the people felt about Jesus. And there's a note in that for us all. Something we have to keep in mind and keep at heart. They hate Jesus. And not because this man is associated with Jesus, they hate him as well. And that's the promise, actually, from Jesus himself, if you're in Christ. If you belong to him, you will be hated. Not just by our world, but he says that there will be division even amongst families. They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They've already been told by Jesus, you're not. You're of your father, the devil. <laughs> but they still believe in themselves. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered. There's a bit of sarcasm now, confidence brewing in him. And he says, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He knows. <laughs> and he sort of knows they know. He's like, this is incredible. 
before me what's taking place. You guys are the leaders of our faith, the leaders of Judaism. You guys are supposed to know it all, but you don't know where that man Jesus came from. Even when you see that he opened my eyes, you don't know what's said about the one who opens eyes. And then this, this man who was blind but now sees goes into his own argument for Jesus. He defends Jesus by going into a bit of theology with him, with the people. It's probably my, one of my favorite sort of non-main characters, if you will, of all of the Bible. I love this guy. He's going to do some theology. It's good. So courageous. So awesome. He says, We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, listen, he could do nothing. What an incredible presentation. Again, from an unlearned man looked down upon in society, certainly, certainly the only answer to this is that God is surely with him here and the spirit of God has given him wisdom and discernment and clarity and insight to talk like this. It's so simple what he says, but such an impressive presentation. And yet again, the Pharisees hate it. If this, if this man were not from God, he could not do a thing. And what's the response to that? They answered him. They don't even address the, what he says. They look at him now and say, you were born in utter sin. They answer the disciples' question, by the way, back in the beginning. Whose fault was it? Right? They want to know. This is the Jewish expectation even. The wrong idea going around about culture, about why there's pain and suffering and death in our world. Now they answer the question. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And what do they do? Exactly what was going to happen to his parents. They cast him out. They don't want to learn. They aren't interested in learning. We've said this before. I'll say it again. All throughout John's gospel, we'll continue to say this. Darkness hates the light. They hate Jesus. This man has gone to Jesus. He has come into the light, and so now they hate him as well. They are so blind. They are blind in their self-righteousness, blind in their pride, blind in their self-importance, blind in their self-sufficiency, and so they cast him out of the synagogue. Imagine that. They have the audacity to ban this man from the holy place of worship the place where you had to go to meet God at this time. And they say, you are no longer welcome here. You're no longer allowed to worship, not just with us, but no longer allowed to do proper worship. I think it's also worth noting here, again, worth the note in the side of your Bible, this is the first account of persecution amongst one of Jesus' followers recorded in the Bible. This is the first persecuted man first faith. And certainly we know it won't be the last in the scriptures. Certainly we know that this persecution still continues today all throughout our world. 
I would have loved to see how he responded to this. Just to be a fly on the wall, as they say, or an observer that day. You ever had that conversation? I remember in university, um, you know, I guess this is what kids at Christian school do, but they, uh, in college, they sit around at night and, you know, drink tea and talk about, hey, like someday if you could go back to like one of the Bible stories, which one would you want to see, right? Have you been there? Yeah, we have that, right? Right? Did that and goes through it. And someone will be like, you know, of course, David and Goliath. You'd be like, oh, white. I want to be there with a blind man, right? And you'd be like, ooh, that one. And you'd open. And like, yeah, me too, right? Right? We put on our 3D, 3D glasses together, right? We'd have that conversation. Seriously. <laughs> um, and so when I was reading this story, actually, I kind of, yeah, I kind of chuckled because that came to mind. And I was just thinking to myself, boy, someday I, I hope, it's great to read about this. Someday I hope I get the privilege of seeing it. You get to kind of do the DVR thing or rewind it. I don't know exactly what happened, but I like to think that he left the Pharisees, he left the temple that day dancing and singing, rejoicing, rejoicing. Why? Because he had the privilege of being treated the same way as Jesus. What an honor. What a blessing. Cast out, just like his Savior. Well, we see then that the chapter comes to a close. And there's a response from Jesus to all this, followed by a response from the former blind man. So look at what happens. Jesus heard, he got wind that the Pharisees had cast him out of the temple. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Right here, we actually get a bit of a preview of chapter 10 which we'll go to in a couple weeks. We get a little bit of a preview of what Jesus is going to say about himself in the next chapter because right here we see really for the, the first kind of very obvious time, Jesus here is going after the one. He's, he's going after the one who's been tossed to the side, who's, who's been kind of put out to pasture. I'll just use that phrase. He goes after his sheep here. And as the good shepherd of John 10, he finds this man. Little preview. And when he finds him, he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's the term used in Daniel chapter 7 of the Messiah, the one who to come. Who is to come. And it's here that we see this man's understanding of Jesus finally reaches the pinnacle. The peak, verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Man who is just cast out from the place of worship worships. This is my prayer, by the way, for every single one of us in the room today, that you would say to Jesus, you are Lord, I believe. That's simple. And as a result of knowing who Jesus is, our first response, which is the best response, 
would be to worship him. This guy has gone from his name was Jesus to he is a prophet to he's sent from God and now we see he comes to a place where he confesses Jesus as Lord and he worships him. This man is teachable, he's humble, and now he is a disciple. And as for the religious leaders, the Jews, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. There's really three parts to this verse. First, Jesus says that he came for judgment. I've come for judgment, Jesus says. And that's not a a contradiction to what he said before when he says that he's come not to condemn but to save, right? Yes, Jesus did come to save, but his coming into the world is itself a judgment because the entire human race is divided based on their response to Jesus. His coming into the world reveals, he says, who among us is blind, who among us can really see, and in that there is judgment. His coming is a judgment. And when Jesus said this, he isn't hiding, by the way. This isn't a secret. These words are public. And we know that because in verse 40, we learn that some of the Pharisees are hanging around the blind man still. And they're hanging around Jesus. They're listening into this conversation. Jesus knows that, of course, and that's why he says what he says. And they are not happy. What else is new? Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? They say, based on what you just said, Jesus, you seem to be implying that we are the blind ones. And that's true, by the way. <laughs> they are. Jesus answers as a yes, but notice Jesus adds a little nuance to this, a little flavor, a little spice. He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains what he means is, if you had no knowledge, zero understanding, then you wouldn't be held to the same standard, but you do know. You do, particularly in the position that you hold. He's reminding them of who they are. You have the law, guys. You have the prophets. And now, most of all, you have me standing right in front of you. For us today, in our context, our context, this is like saying to the unbeliever, hey, there's no excuses. You have access to the word of God. You've, you've heard about Jesus. You've been taught about Jesus and the gospel. And if you still say that you don't see, with all of those factors in place, here's the reality. You're guilty. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no excuse. Romans 1 tells us that no one has an excuse. You can look at the trees and know that there is a God. There's no excuse we all have that much knowledge, at least. You're guilty because you haven't responded rightly. You're guilty of rejecting Jesus, of turning from him. And so it's here that we are once again seeing the big issue. It all comes down to this. It all comes down to the question, who is Jesus? That's the question. Everyone that I used to, I told you guys about you know, getting in debate with people, staying with the facts, staying on the gospel, right? 
Um, I used to, when I was a lot younger, <laughs> when people would have debates and want to debate me about Christianity, I'd use like my training in apologetics and things I studied, and I'd go into the nuances of things and all that, do that thing. And there's a time and a place for that. But typically, typically now when I'm with somebody and they ask me a question about Christianity, something like, or about the Bible, they say, how do you know um, that God has always been and always will be? Like, he existed before all things. I'll say, that's a great question. Let me ask you one. Who is Jesus? Because even if I prove the one, it doesn't help them with Jesus. See, we can spend so much time debating all these other nuances of Christianity, but you get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. You get Jesus right, now you can believe that there's a God who existed before all things. Bring people back to that place. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Let me tell you what a bunch of people said about him, how their lives changed because of him. Let me tell you how my life changed because of him. Now you answer for yourself, who is Jesus? Don't get stuck in the mud with people. Who is Jesus? You either respond in one way that says you're guilty, or you respond in another way that says you're free. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You're either blind or you see. There is no third category in the scriptures. So to summarize all of this, this blind man who can now see is such a great example to us of what it's like to become a follower of Jesus, to become a Christian. Think of his story. It starts with hopelessness. It begins in a place of desperation. It begins in a place where there's a beggar, a man who knows that he has a great need. And in that place of need, it's coming to a place of understanding that Jesus, in his sovereign grace, has come to us to save us, to come and open our eyes. This is the testimony, this is the story, once again, of every disciple. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were blind, but now we see. And for those of us who do see, whose eyes have been opened, there is just one response. One response today. We say to Jesus, you are Lord, I believe, and we worship with all of our hearts, with all that we are, with all that we have, we praise the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.